Hello, I'm John Dennis. It's Monday the 1st of February. Today, an escalation of tension in the Gulf as Barack Obama speeds up the deployment of American missile defences. The administration is, is prepared to step up, take a, a hard line with Iran and is prepared to move decisively to contain any threat from Iran. Iran's likely to see it as an act of aggression. They will say it justifies what they've been saying for a long time now, that the great Satan, as they call it, has their malign intentions towards the Islamic Republic. In other news, there's fresh pressure on Lord Ashcroft, the Tories' biggest financial backer, to reveal his tax status after a ruling by the information watchdog. They will have very kind of serious questions to answer about why they didn't hold into account on it. Amazon stops selling books published by Macmillan in a dispute over pricing. As much as we want to talk about how big Apple is going to be in the ebook market, the Kindle has become incredibly important. And why British lecturers teaching at Italian universities feel they're getting a raw deal. They are saying that after many years of fighting, they are still being paid less, shut out of some of the rights that they would uh, expect. First, our top story. The Obama administration is speeding up the deployment of special warships off the Iranian coast. Anti-missile systems are being sighted in at least four Arab countries. In a moment, we'll hear from Simon Tisdale about the Iranian position. But first, our Washington correspondent, Chris McGreal, explains what America's doing. Its allies in the Gulf fear that they will be the target of retaliation by Iranian missiles if the U.S. is successful in, in persuading the United Nations Security Council to impose more sanctions on Tehran over its nuclear program, probably aimed at the Revolutionary Guard, which seems to be in charge of it. But it's very much the deployment of a missile shield to protect those countries, or at least reassure them, combination of the Patriot missiles, some other defensive missile programs, and also the United States says it's going to keep some ships in the Gulf, at least two ships capable of shooting down missiles before they could reach these Gulf countries. There's a second element to this, which is also trying to deter Israel from doing anything preemptive, uh, any kind of preemptive attack against Iran by showing that the administration is, is prepared to step up, take a, a hard line with Iran and is prepared to move decisively to contain any threat from Iran. Is this the Obama administration moving away from a more diplomatic approach to Iran? Well, certainly I think diplomacy is still there, certainly uh, a more publicly hard line. I mean, if we look at what had happened with George Bush, who'd taken a you know, fairly belligerent public line, Obama came to power saying that he was going to pursue the diplomatic option, and that doesn't seem to have uh, delivered very much so far. Even if he continues to press the diplomatic option, it, it's clear that he's going to do it now, taking a much more um, a robust public stand with Iran and Hillary Clinton when she was in London last week said publicly that they would be um, looking for sanctions now against Iran because it's failed to uh, respond to the diplomatic overtures. Chris McGreal in Washington. Well, how will Iran respond to this? Foreign Affairs Specialist Simon Tisdall. Well, I think the Iranian regime, as distinct from the Iranian people, will uh, regard it and characterise it as an aggressive act by the Americans and by some of their allies in the Arab world. And they will say it justifies what they've been saying for a long time now, that the great Satan, as they call it, has their malign intentions towards the Islamic Republic and justifies some of the actions they've taken, including the increased military spending and the Revolutionary Guards and also possibly on the nuclear programme. How about um, the international community? Is there, will there be much support for this US approach to Iran? 
Well, I think there'll be a lot of nervousness in some quarters in Western Europe, though it's notable in recent days that the German Chancellor, for instance, Angela Merkel, has been taking an increasingly tougher line on Iran. Um, she's particularly uh, offended by President Ahmadinejad's Holocaust denial, I think. And uh, last week, uh, when the Israeli president was in Germany, it was an occasion for her to suggest that Germany would be prepared to go it alone in a sort of coalition of the willing in supporting tougher sanctions on Iran, if, if that's necessary. Of course, Germany is the, Europe's biggest exporter to Iran, so that's quite a significant move. What about the Middle Eastern countries that have accepted these American defence systems? Qatar, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain and Kuwait. I mean, how will Iran respond to them? Well, there's a long history of um, tense relations in the Gulf between Iran or Persia, as it once was, and the Gulf states. Um, Bahrain is, is a home to a U.S. naval base. Qatar used to be a center for uh, the U.S. CENTCOM command, no, no longer. Saudi Arabia, of course, has long been a, a, a close ally of the United States, selling oil in return for large arms purchases. They have, I think, justified fears about Iranian intentions because Iran's not very good at explaining what its, what its actions, and um, that compounds a long history of territorial and other disputes. Simon Tisdall, and there's full coverage at guardian.co.uk slash America. Also on The Guardian's website today, a film of the singer and activist Billy Bragg. He's taken his campaign against bankers' bonuses to Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park. What are we doing here on a cold day? Well, the reason we're here at Speaker's Corner is because this place has a great tradition of being somewhere where dissent can be freely expressed. To me, paying my income tax is an expression of social solidarity a means of making a contribution to the common good. Paying taxes is a way of recognising that in any society we all of us have some degree of responsibility for one another. The failure of politicians to act on bankers' bonuses is a relic of the monetarist orthodoxies of the past 30 years, a stark illustration of a value system gone wrong. Billy Bragg, and you can watch a video of Billy Bragg at Speaker's Corner at guardian.co.uk slash comment is free. Hilary Mantel's Booker Prize winning bestseller Wolf Hall is among the books you can't buy from Amazon in America at the moment. Amazon.com has stopped selling all books published by Macmillan. That's physical books and digital Kindle editions. It followed the announcement last week by Apple that Macmillan was one of five publishers backing its new iBook store. Katie Allen is our media business correspondent. Well, according to Macmillan, which had meetings with Amazon last Thursday on pricing, um, Macmillan's chief executive over there, John Sargent, says that hours after the meeting, when he tried to stand firm on a new pricing model that he wants, Amazon started taking down the books. So both the hard copies that you mail order from Amazon and both the copies in its Kindle um, electronic bookstore. Because there's been a furore for quite a long time about Amazon's pricing of books. They're $9.99 in America, aren't they? That's right. For many of the best-selling titles, they're nine ninety-nine, and the problem for that with that for publishers is they say, yes, we save money on distribution and printing, but we've still got to pay the authors, we've got to pay the agents. We don't actually save the same amount as mon- of money as you take off to sell them at nine ninety-nine. And the other problem that they see is you devalue the concept of a book as a whole. They say if you sell a book five dollars 
as an audiobook or an electronic book, then how can we put our hardbacks Christmas bestsellers in the in the um, market at $24? Now, it's presumably no accident that this has happened just a couple of days after the iPad was launched, Apple's answer to Amazon Kindle. I think you're right. It's unlikely to be a coincidence. And I, th- I feel like maybe some of the publishers have become a little emboldened by the deal with Apple, which is likely to see them being able to set some of the prices on some of their books, or they'll at least have a bit more freedom, according to the reports we're getting from the US. So they feel that maybe Amazon is not their only outlet now. And Apple, it's hoped, while perhaps the iPad isn't the best thing to read a book on as, as gadgets go and as you know, not as easy on the eye, perhaps, it's felt that Apple might do the same as it's done in the music market, which is make books incredibly easy to buy at the click of a button easily searchable store one-stop shop and a sort of user system that millions of people have already got to grips with around the world through apple's other products but macmillan's a big client and amazon will be keen to resolve this row presumably yeah i think the way that macmillan have described it and i'm keen to stress that amazon haven't got back to us today and they don't seem to have commented anywhere in the press but the way macmillan are describing it so far is an impasse that Neither side seems willing to budge, but they're very keen to work with them in the future because, you know, as much as we want to talk about how big Apple is going to be in the ebook market, the Kindle has become incredibly important. Publishers have said in the past that until the Kindle came along, ebooks really didn't take off in the US. And they have, in a way, revolutionized the, the, the way people read. I mean, it's apparently quite common to see people in the US on the subway or wherever holding a Kindle, and, you know, publishers will be keen to maintain that relationship. Katie Allen. Lord Ashcroft faces fresh pressure today to reveal his tax status. Ashcroft is the biggest donor to the Conservative Party and is thought to be in line for a cabinet position if the Tories win the election. But he won't say whether he pays tax in the UK, despite promising to do so when he was made a peer in 2000. Now the information watchdog has criticised the Tory leadership for being evasive and obfuscatory when asked about Ashcroft. And he says the Cabinet Office must now reveal exactly what Ashcroft promised to do 10 years ago when he was ennobled. Polly Curtis, our Whitehall correspondent, explains what the Information Commissioner says in his ruling about the Conservatives. Well, they accuse him of being evasive, of avoiding the question, and say that by not revealing whether he is a non-dom or British taxpayer, they have compounded the um, speculation around Lord Ashcroft. They say that Lord Ashcroft could have ended that speculation at any time by just saying what his residency is, but he's chosen not to do that. He's even fueled that speculation. So what the Information Commissioner said was that despite the fact that the House of Lords process is usually held completely in secret, he says that the public interest around Lord Ashcroft and his tax affairs and his status as a member of the House of Lords is more important than the secrecy of the process of appointing peers. What happened back in 2000 when Lord Ashcroft was made a peer? Become domiciled in the UK. The mechanism of that promise was never revealed. It was never revealed who it was made to, how it was made. And that kind of represents the level of secrecy around Lord Ashcroft. At the moment, we're not allowed to know whether he is domiciled in the UK or how and when and who he made that promise to. So that promise will now come out within the next 35 days. This has come after it's emerged that Lord Ashcroft 
accompanied William Hague on an official visit to Cuba. What happened then? This uh, latest in a series of meetings that Ashcroft had, um, Hague was the one who originally recommended him for a position in the House of Lords. So there's big questions about Hague's role in all of this. When they reveal what that mechanism was, what the undertaking actually was, if um, William Hague or any other of the Conservative leadership were actually involved in the mechanism of taking that undertaking to become domiciled in the UK, they will have very kind of serious questions to answer about why they didn't hold into account on it. Polly Curtis. British lecturers teaching at ancient Italian universities such as Padua and Verona say they're the victims of discrimination. That's what David Petrie is going to be arguing today when he meets Britain's Europe Minister Chris Bryant. Tom Kington's in Rome for The Guardian. David Petrie represents um, a large group of British lecturers in Italy who are trying to get equal treatment with their Italian colleagues. They are saying that after many years of fighting, they are still being paid less, being denied promotions, shut out of some of the rights that they would uh, expect, like pension rights. This, they say, despite six European Court of Justice rulings regarding their case. They're now hoping to get the British government involved and to get uh, ministers like Chris Bryant to uh, protest to his Italian colleagues. How many lecturers are we talking about here? And what's the difference between what they earn and what their Italian colleagues earn? There are between three and 400 foreign lecturers in Italy, half of whom are British, who are now taking home an average of about €1,000 a month, compared to their Italian equivalents, who could be earning well over twice that much. Why have these lecturers been discriminated against? If you listen to the British lecturers, they'll say it's due to uh, a a kind of closed shop system at the Italian universities, whereby the Italian professors, who are very much entrenched in the power systems within the universities, will do anything to keep the British lecturers away from the plum jobs, away from the pension rights, away from the wage rises, to then keep uh, those kind of benefits for themselves, their friends and their relations. It seems a shame because, uh, you know, teaching at a university in a beautiful city in Italy might seem like a plum job. Well, I think the flip side is is this kind of medieval guild-like mentality that you will find at these universities, which do date back centuries and, and appear beautiful, stunning and very appealing on the surface. Tom Kington in Rome. Guardian Daily was produced today by Ian Chambers. I'm John Dennis. Thanks for listening.